Welcome to the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. This podcast will be a sharing of part of my morning routine as I prepare for the day with the Word of God. We will be partaking of Puritan prayers from the Valley of Vision, each day's morning devotional from Charles Haddon Spurgeon's Morning and Evening, and we'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, which is the newest and, I believe, the most accurate translation of the Word of God. We will be following a Bible reading calendar that provides for reading the whole Bible in a year that was created by Minister Robert Murray McShane for his congregation back in 1842, and that has been a part of my daily reading for over six years now. Good morning and welcome to the morning section of the, let's see, December 1st. Uh, it's Thursday, December 1st, 2022 episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I'm Wayne Floyd, your host, and uh, I hope you're having a good week. We got over the middle of the week and we're heading into the end of the week, so I hope that's going well for you. Again, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. I hope you're looking forward to a wonderful Christmas season. I would encourage you to remember the reason for the season, um, Christ's birth, which leads to Christ's death and resurrection, which leads to our salvation. Um, so that's, you know, that's the reason for the season, not, not the Santa Claus and all the other and everything. Don't get me wrong. I love all that and enjoy all that, but we need, especially as Christians, we want to remember what the real reason for this time of year is. And it's the birth of our savior. Um, and, and like, um, I, I know our church for Christmas Eve is going to do it's, you, you got to make the relationship between his birth, his sinless life, his death and his resurrection, because it's a whole package deal. You can't take one without the other. Um, I think that's kind of why, as much as I enjoy Christmas, one of my favorite um, holidays is Easter. And I'm not talking Easter Bunny, I'm talking the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ is one of my favorites. Um, it wasn't when I was younger, but when I became saved, it became the critical one for me. So anyways, and of course I'm rambling, but just wanted to touch base with that. But I I, I do, I hope you're, you're coming into a great one. I hope you've found a solid church. Um, if not, um, you can definitely founders ministry has a church finder out there and grace to you. Well, um, I think his master seminary actually has one out there as well for you to find, um, solid preachers and solid and solid, um, uh, pastors. Sorry. I've got a dog trying to get into something. So I was trying to get him down. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get going. We're going to open up this morning with the fifth day morning prayer. It's called the giver. Creator, upholder, and proprietor of all things, we cannot escape from thy presence and control, nor do we desire to do so. Our privilege is to be under the agency of thy omnipotence, righteousness, wisdom, patience, mercy, and grace. For thou art love with more than parental affection. We admire thy goodness, stand in awe of thy power, abase ourselves before thy purity. It is this discovery of thy goodness alone that can banish our fear. Allure us into thy presence. Help us to bewail and confess our sins. We review our past guilt and are conscious of present unworthiness. We bless thee that thy steadfast love and attributes are essential to our happiness and hope. Thou hast witnessed to us thy grace and mercy, in the bounties of nature, in the fullness of thy providence, in the revelations of scripture, in the gift of thy Son, in the proclamation of the gospel. Make us willing to be saved in thy own way, perceiving nothing in ourselves, but all in Jesus. Help us not only to receive him, but to walk in him, depend upon him, commune with him, follow him as dear children, imperfect, but still pressing forward, not complaining of labor, but valuing rest, not murmuring under trials, 
but thankful for our state, and by so doing let us silence the ignorance of foolish men. Amen. All right, now our morning devotion. It's uh, from the December 1st. Uh, de- it's December 1st morning for uh, from Spurgeon's morning and evening. Sorry, I went blank there a little bit this morning. All right, and the text for it is Psalm seventy four seventeen. Thou hast made summer and winter. My soul begin this wintry month with thy God. The cold snows and the piercing winds all remind thee that he keeps his covenant with day and night and tend to assure thee that he will also keep that glorious covenant which he has made with thee in the person of Christ Jesus. He who is true to his word and the revolutions of the seasons of this poor sin-polluted world will not prove unfaithful in his dealings with his own well-beloved son. Winter in the soul is by no means a comfortable season, and if it be upon thee just now, it will be very painful to thee. But there is this comfort, namely, that the Lord makes it, He sends the sharp blasts of adversity to nip the buds of expectation. He scattereth the hoarfrost like ashes over the once verdant meadows of our joy. He casteth forth his ice like morsels, freezing the streams of our delight. He does it all. He is the great winter king, and rules in the realms of frost, and therefore thou canst not murmur. Losses, crosses, heaviness, sickness, poverty, and a thousand other ills are of the Lord's sending, and come to us with wise design. Frosts kill noxious insects, and put a bound to raging diseases. They break up the clods, and sweeten the soil. Oh, that such good results would always follow our winters of affliction. How we prize the fire just now! How pleasant is its cheerful glow! Let us, in the same manner, prize our Lord, who is the constant source of warmth and comfort in every time of trouble. Let us draw nigh to him, and in him find joy and peace in believing. Let us wrap ourselves in the warm garments of his promises, and go forth to labors which befit the season. For it were ill to be as the sluggard, who will not plow by reason of the cold, for he shall beg in summer and have nothing. All right, and our reading for today, we're going to start in First Chronicles number uh, chapter 29. Um, and this is as David is starting to um, turn over everything to Solomon to build um, the temple. So First Chronicles 29. Then King David said to the entire assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone excuse me, God has chosen, is still young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the temple is not for man, but for Yahweh God. Now with all my power I have prepared for the house of my God, the gold for the things of gold, and the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood, onyx stones and inlaid stones, stones of antimony and stones of various colors, and all kinds of precious stones and alabaster in abundance. Moreover, in my pleasure in the house of my God, the treasure I have of gold and silver I give to the house of my God, over and above all that I have already prepared for the holy house namely 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the buildings, of gold for the things of gold, and of silver for the things of silver, that is, for all the work done by the hand of craftsmen, who then would offer willingly to ordain himself this day to Yahweh. Then the commanders of the fathers' households, and the commanders of the tribes of Israel, and the commanders of thousands and of hundreds with the commanders of the king's work, offered willingly. 
and for the service for the house of God, they gave 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, and 10,000 talents of silver, and 18,000 talents of brass, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever possessed precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of Yahweh in the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people were glad, because they had offered so willingly, for they made their freewill offering to Yahweh with a whole heart. And King David also was exceedingly glad. So David blessed Yahweh in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, our Father, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Yahweh, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the kingdom, O Yahweh, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. So now, our God, we are thanking you and praising you, your glorious name. But who am I, and who are my people, that we should be able to offer as willingly as this? For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. For we are sojourners before you, and foreign residents like all our fathers were, our days like our, like all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope. O Yahweh our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name, it is from your hand, and all is yours. And I know, O oh my God, that you try the heart and delight in uprightness. I, in the uprightness of my heart, have willingly offered all these things. So now with gladness I have seen your people who are present here make their offerings willingly to you. O oh Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the intentions of the heart of your people, and prepare their heart to you, and give to my son Solomon a whole heart to keep your commandments, your testimonies and your statutes, and to do them all, and to build the temple for which I have made preparations. Then David said to all the assembly, Now bless Yahweh your God. And all the assembly blessed Yahweh, the God of their fathers, and bowed low and prostrated themselves to Yahweh and to the king. And on the next day they made sacrifices to Yahweh and offered burnt offerings to Yahweh, one thousand bulls, one thousand rams, and one thousand lambs, with their drink offering and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. So they ate and drank that day before Yahweh with great gladness. And they made Solomon the son of David king a second time. And they anointed him as ruler for Yahweh and Zadok as priest. Then Solomon sat on the throne of Yahweh as king instead of David his father. And he succeeded, and all Israel obeyed him. And all the officials, the mighty men, and also all the sons of King David pledged allegiance to King Solomon. And Yahweh highly exalted Solomon in the sight of all Israel, and granted to him royal majesty, which had not been on any king before him in Israel. Now David the son of Jesse reigned over all Israel, and the time which he reigned over Israel was forty years in Hebron. He reigned seven years and in Jerusalem thirty-three years. Then he died in a good old age, full of days, riches, and glory, and his son Solomon became king in his place. Now the acts of King David from the first to last, behold, they are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer, in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet, and in the chronicles of Gad the seer. With all his reign, his might, and the circumstances which came on him on Israel, and on all the kingdoms of the lands. All right, now Second Peter 3. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder 
that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Knowing this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being deluged with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away, with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be found out, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens burning will be destroyed, and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are looking for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And consider the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother, Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. As also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest you, having been carried away by the error of unprincipled men, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. All right, now Micah 6. Listen now to what Yahweh is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills listen to your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the case of Yahweh, and you enduring foundations of the earth, because Yahweh has a case against his people. Even with Israel he will reprove. My people, what have I done to you, and how have I wearied you? Answer me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and ransomed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. My people remember now what Balak king of Moab counseled, and what Balaam son of Beor answered him, and from Shittim to Gilgal, so that you might know the righteous act of, acts of Yahweh. With what shall I come before Yahweh, and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Is Yahweh pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does Yahweh require of you, but to do justice, to love loving kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The voice of Yahweh will call to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear, O tribe, who even has appointed its time, is there yet a man in the wicked house, along with treasures of wickedness, and a short measure, measure which is cursed? Can I purify wicked scales, and a bag of deceptive weights? 
for the rich men of the city are full of violence, and her inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. So also I will make you sick, striking you down, desolating you because of your sins. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied, and your vileness will be in your midst. And you, you will try to remove something for safekeeping, but you will not cause anything to escape. And that which you do have escape, you, you do have escape, I will give to the sword. You will sow, but you will not reap. You will tread the olive, but will not anoint yourself with oil. And the grapes, but you will not drink wine. The statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab are kept, and in their counsels you walk. Therefore I will give you up as an object of horror, and your inhabitants as an object of hissing, and you will bear the reproach of my people. Now Luke 15. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him, and both the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has one hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten drachmas and loses one drachma, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the drachma which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, A man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate, living recklessly. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country. And he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he was desiring to be fed with the pods that the swine were eating. And no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will rise up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he rose up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, slaughter it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And summoning one of the servants, he began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not wanting to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. 
But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and never have I neglected a command of yours. And yet never have you given me a young goat, so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Child, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and is alive, and was lost and has been found. All right, well, that is our reading for today. We're going to go ahead and close up with prayer. Um, I would definitely remind you, please do all that you do today for the glory of God. And God willing, I'll see you this evening. So our closing prayer is called Vain Service. Let me see if I can get it to go. There we go. Oh, my Lord, forgive me for serving thee in sinful ways by glorifying, glorying in my own strength, by forcing myself to minister through necessity, by accepting the applause of others, by trusting in assumed grace and spiritual affection, by a faith that rests upon my hold on Christ, not on him alone, by having another foundation to stand upon beside thee, for thus I make flesh my arm. Help me to see that it is faith stirred by grace that does the deed, that faith brings a man nearer to thee, raising him above mere men, that thou dost act upon the soul when thou when thus elevated and lifted out of itself, that faith centers in thee as God all-sufficient, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as God efficient, mediately as in thy commands and promises, immediately in all the hidden power, that faith sees and knows to be in thee, abundantly with omnipotent effect in the revelation of thy will, if I have not such faith, I am nothing. It is my duty to set thee above all others in mind and eye. But it is my sin that I place myself above thee. Lord, it is the special evil of sin that every breach of thy law arises from contempt of thy person, from despising thee and thy glory, from preferring things before thee. Help me to abhor myself in comparison of thee and keep me in a faith that works by love and serves by grace. Amen. All right. Well, like I said, you go and do everything you do for the glory of God. And God willing, I'll see you this evening. God bless. Welcome to the evening segment of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. Good evening and welcome to the evening segment of the Thursday, December 1st, 2022 episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I continue to be Wayne Floyd, your host, and we're going to go ahead and get right into this. Um, Fortuitously, and you'll see why I speak of this, um, our opening prayer that just happened to come out in the selection um, is named The Servant in Battle. So that's what we're going to open up in. Oh, Lord. I bless thee that the issue of the battle between thyself and Satan has never been uncertain and will end in victory. Calvary broke the dragon's head, and I contend with a vanquished foe, who with all his subtlety and strength has already been overcome. When I feel the serpent at my heel, may I remember him whose heel was bruised, but who, when bruised, broke the devil's head. My soul with inward joy extols the mighty conqueror. Heal me of any wounds received in the great conflict. If I have gathered defilement, if my faith has suffered damage, if my hope is less than bright, 
if my love is not fervent, if some creature comfort occupies my heart, if my soul sinks under pressure of the fight. O thou whose every promise is balm, every touch life, draw near to thy weary warrior. Refresh me that I may rise again to wage the strife and never tire until my enemy is trodden down. Give me such fellowship with thee that I may defy Satan, unbelief, the flesh, the world, with delight that comes not from a creature, and which a creature cannot mar. Give me a draught of the eternal fountain that lieth in thy immutable everlasting love and decree. Then shall my hand never weaken, my feet never stumble, my sword never rest, my shield never rust, my helmet never shatter, my breastplate never fall, and my strength rests in the power of thy might. Amen. All right, and then our evening devotion for uh, December 1st. The text is Psalm 107, 8. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. If we complained less and praised more, we should be happier and God would be more glorified. Let us daily praise God for common mercies, common as we frequently call them and yet so priceless, that when deprived of them we are ready to perish. Let us bless God for the eyes with which we behold the sun, for the health and strength to walk abroad, for the bread we eat, for the raiment we wear. Let us praise him that we are not cast out among the hopeless or confined amongst the guilty. Let us thank him for liberty for friends, for family associations and comforts. Let us praise him, in fact, for everything which we receive from his bounteous hand, for we deserve little and yet are most plenteously endowed. But, beloved, the sweetest and the loudest note in our songs of praise should be of redeeming love. God's redeeming acts towards his chosen are forever the favorite themes of their praise. If we know what redemption means, let us not withhold our sonnets of thanksgiving. We have been redeemed from the power of our corruptions, uplifted from the depth of sin in which we were naturally plunged. We have been led to the cross of Christ. Our shackles of guilt have been broken off. We are no longer slaves, but children of the living God and can antedate the period when we shall be presented before the throne without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Even now, by faith, we have the palm branch and wrap ourselves about with the fair linen, which is to be our everlasting array. And shall we not unceasingly give thanks to the Lord, our Redeemer? Child of God, canst thou be silent? Awake, awake, ye inheritors of glory, and lead your captivity captive, as ye cry with David, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Let the new month begin with new songs. All right, we are continuing our study in Ephesians. Uh, We're continuing in our section about the preparation for battle uh, that we started last evening. Uh, We were talking first. We're we're getting ready. Um, We've talked about it. We had... um, First three chapters of Ephesians, um, which we didn't go through. We started in chapter four, but just to give you the context of this whole thing, the first three chapters of Ephesians is the doctrine. That is the doctrine that the church, that that we individual church members, that we parts of the body of Christ must live by. That is our doctrine. And then chapters four through the beginning of chapter six is our duty. Um, It is how we should behave if we are those Christians, if we believe in that theology, if that theology is what controls and directs our wife, that it edifies us and and equips us and hedges up our ways, then we will walk that worthy walk that is described 
from uh, Ephesians 4.1 through um, Ephesians 6.9. Um, and, and, but what all that is, is preparation that here we are, we're heading into bat. We're going to be heading into battle. And as I said last night, if you are a true blood-bought born-again believer, you're in a spiritual battle. You are in a spiritual battle. And as we talked about it last night, the, the point I tried to make, um, as verse 10 here says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the might of his strength, that the strength is not ours. The strength is God's. In our weakness, he is strong, but the strength is God's. But that is the power that created the universe. That is the power that's on our side. And yes, though Christ has already won the war, we still have battles to fight and we're put here to do that. But so here is our preparation from battle. So I'm going to go ahead and read all the verses. It's Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and then the might of his strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. So, like I said, we dealt with Ephesians 6.10 yesterday. It was that, that first, you know, it's finally, so it says... You know, everything from Ephesians 1 to Ephesians 6, 9, because of all that, finally be strong in the Lord. This is our conclusion. This is the Paul's conclusion to Ephesians 6. And like I said, this is a letter. The chapters and verses is what we've put on it. So what I titled this, this little section, we're doing verses 11 through 13, which starts with put on the full armor of God. And then verse 13, take up the full armor of God. Um, is this the preparation for ba for battle, put on and take up. So, like I said, our first exhortation by Paul in this section was to be strong. Be strong in the Lord. So being strong with his strength. So we see the second exhortation pop up in verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So put on here, the Greek behind this, put on. I mean, we, we, can't, we don't want to just, you know, put on the, the full armor of God. Okay, so I put it on. The Greek here has the implication of putting it on and leaving it on. This is, this is not a putting on to go out on a dinner date and then hanging it back up in the closet or putting it on to go out and bring the trash can in and taking it back on. This is putting it on and wear it constantly till glorification. It's a, for, for us, if we are blood-bought, born-again believers, we put that armor on and it does not come off till we see God. That's it. Now, being an amateur military historian myself, um, I tended to, I've tended to be more interested in the stuff around World War II and then the American Civil War, but I've done a lot of reading in other areas as well. But I've done a good bit of reading about soldiers that are in the battle space. And what I'm talking about is soldiers, not that are sitting in a rear area or preparing, but that are actually out in the battle space, that are out, actually out on the front lines. And, and I've read about it from ancient battles into our current conflicts that are happening, that have been happening now and like in one case for near 20 years. And one of the things that I constantly come across is that when soldiers enter the battle space, 
their armor does not come off and their weapons do not leave their hands. Um, to be honest, um, my, the, the, the vessel I served on when I was in the Navy, there were a number of times we did some interesting things. And I remember some very interesting people sleeping with their weapons. Okay. Um, even, even aboard my vessel when they hadn't even entered the battle space yet. But again, they sleep in the, in the armor with the weapons at their fingertips. Now, you know, I, I was fortunate enough that I never ended up having to be while my, I guess my submarine was on the pointing end of the spear. I never ended up being like these, like, um, any number of my brothers and sisters in, in the service, um, in, in your, um, in your body or in their body armor with their helmets on holding, holding their, their M16, M4, whatever it happened to be cuddled up, you know, in the dirt next to each other, you know, behind a berm somewhere trying, trying to protect themselves and trying to sleep and whatever else, but they sleep in the armor with their weapons at their f- fingertips. Um, there's even documentation of some of the undergarments worn under some of the ancient metal armors. Um, when they used to wear some of the plate mail, there would be a chain shirt under it than the plate mail over it, but there were garments they wore underneath it because that chain against your skin or against even a plain linen shirt would hurt you. So there would be padded undergarments under there, but those undergarments would smell of the armor of the human body and would smell such that there was no way to wash out that smell. They would have to wear it constantly. Um, Cracks have even been made that the undergarments reach a point that they can stand up on their own. I mean, it's that bad. They they have to wear it that often. But why? Why do they do that? Because it's a matter of life and death. Um, I'm in the in the battle space today. You don't have to get you don't have to get hit by a bullet to get killed. All it has to be is a ricochet, and if that ricochet comes through the right place, and you don't have um, armor plates in your, in your, in your battle vest and all that, um, front or back, you can take a round through the wrong place and bleed to death before anybody knows it. So it's a matter of life and death, but this is what Paul is indicating here. If we are saved, we are to don this armor, take up these weapon weapons and never take them off or put them down until we pass on until we go on to glory because it's a matter of eternal life and eternal death. Paul is speaking here of the full armor of God. All of it is to be put on. All of it is necessary. And and God willing, here in the next week or so, we're going to start breaking it down piece by piece. But this isn't a piecemeal type operation. We need it all to be able to stand firm against the schemes of, schemes of the devil. Um, and, and I'll tell you, and, and we'll get into it more, but the pieces of armor Paul talks about, these tended to be the pieces of armor that a Roman centurion would wear. And the Roman centurion didn't wear one part or one part without the others. Um, fine. You're wearing your breastplate. Guess where you're not going to get hit the breastplate. Guess where they are going to try to hit you every place else that isn't protected, particularly your head. If you don't have your helmet on all the different parts are needed. And that's what Paul's talking about here, putting on the full armor of God. That word is just not an extra word. We've talked before. Paul doesn't randomly put stuff in there. 
And it, he goes on in that verse, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The standing firm referenced here is the standing firm even when all around you have given way. Um, I, I've done enough reading, um, particularly around the American Civil War, where where units as as um, you know divisions or well, actually in a lot of cases regiments sitting there um, holding a line, and the regiments on either side of them start to fail, and all of a sudden their flanks are open and they start falling back and falling back and falling back. But there are stories um, everywhere um, throughout our history of people standing firm and holding the line. There are stories um, out of a number of different battles of gentlemen, some that got um, the Distinguished Service Cross, whichever it happened to be, the Navy Cross, whatever, whatever service they were in, or the Congressional Medal of Honor, where when they finally, and a lot of them were posthumously, but when they found the person who eventually became that Medal of Honor winner, they might they might be passed, but the enemy was stacked up around them. When everybody else fell back, they stayed in place and they fought till they couldn't fight anymore. Um, I, I remember, um, and you can see it. Um, I, I obviously I like war movies and stuff like that. I, I'm really not bloodthirsty, but um, I enjoyed the series, The Pacific. And one of the gentlemen that is spoken of, and this is a true person, is John Bassalone. Um, I think that's correct, is John Bassalone. Um, I know the last name's right. I, I think the first name is right because it's been a while since I watched it. But he is a Congressional Medal of Honor winner. And he he actually earned it before he died. He actually died and won a second medal dying. But when he won the first one, he, he was a sergeant for a machine gun squad. I'm, I'm really not trying to give you big, long history, but I want you to understand this of a machine gun squad. And they were on Guadalcanal and their whole, whole area started getting overrun. It was mass wave attacks. And it got to the point that it was so bad and he needed to keep moving with the machine guns. Um, the gloves, the, the big barrels of the machine guns would heat up that they cooled them with water. Well, he got to the point he had to be moving couldn't cool them and couldn't find the glove to protect his hand to grab hold of that barrel. He didn't care. He grabbed hold of that barrel barehanded and burned himself um, severely, was still surviving because he ended up coming back into battle later. Um, but picking up and moving with that big 30 cal machine gun back and forth to keep filling gaps to hold the line, even when everybody else either was injured, couldn't fight, wouldn't fight, you name it, though in this case they were Marines and most of them continued to fight. But he didn't back down. This is the kind of standing firm Paul is talking about here. So that all did have a purpose. I really wasn't trying to regale you with my knowledge, but it has a purpose. This is the kind of standing firm against the schemes of the devil that he's talking about. And, and I want to go on. So this talks about against the schemes of the devil. Um, in our, in our, in our culture, we have this tendency to think of the devil as this goofy looking caricature with a fork tail and a pitchfork. Please don't make that mistake. Paul is very explicit here about what we are facing as an explanation of why we need to make such preparation for battle. These kind of schemes, being able to stand firm against these schemes, he then goes on into chapter 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Stop and think about this. How skilled at something would you be if you had a hundred years to focus on perfecting it? How about a thousand years? How about 7,000 years, which I'm, I'm a young earther, so I tend to figure anywhere from six to 8,000 years is really as old as the earth is. I know there are many things I could perfect in that time. If I had it, and I am only human, Satan is not human. No, he's not anywhere near close to the power level of God. Of course, he was an angel. He is a created being. God is not. But he has had thousands of years to perfect his craft on this earth. He's not called the prince of the power of the, of the air or the ruler of the demons or the god of this world for nothing. He's the more, most formidable, formidable foe we face. And Paul here is showing us that he has legions working for him to carry out his designs. All these terms in verse 12 but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. All of those terms are indicators of different levels of hierarchy within the heavenly realm. And when I say heavenly realm, I'm not talking heaven. I'm talking the spiritual realm. I'm talking the evil portion of this. He's talking about all these different ranks of demons. There are legions of them that work for him. And we also see, let's see, where to go? Oh, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers that goes on. For our struggle, the Greek there, what that means, that indication there is this is close quarters, hand-to-hand combat range. This not talking that we're standing off at sniper range, oh, you know, two miles out, blasting away at each other. We're getting in belly to belly grabbing each other's, uh, what was it? In some, some cases, some of them, um, the way they would ritually fight is they get in and grab each other's belt and go at it. That's what we're talking about. We're belly to belly. That is the kind of conflict we're going to be in. We have to put on the full armor of God so that we can stand firm against the devil and his legions in hand to hand close quarters combat. That's what we're talking about. This is where it gets ugly and dirty and rough, and we have to put on the full armor of God. Paul also indicates that we're not fighting flesh and blood, but the spiritual, as I indicated before. No amount of our worldly gifts can win this battle. I've often asked, when seeing a theologian debating with, say, an atheist, why can the atheist not see the truth, the logic of the theologian not, sorry, Why can the atheist not see the truth? The logic of the theologian was impeccable. But the battle there is not flesh and blood. It's spiritual. I know the theologian in question knows this, but I have to remind myself of that, that they're doing what they're supposed to be. I'm not saying the theologian shouldn't be doing what they're doing. But as wonderful and as as good and as impeccable an argument as they make and a pleading that they make, It's a spiritual battle, and they're using the right tools. But the Holy Spirit working through those tools is what changes things. Until the Holy Spirit takes hold and opens the eyes, no amount of fleshly logic is going to convince them. Again, to summarize this part, the battle here is not fleshly. 
and no amount of our gifts will win this battle. Only Christ's strength, the full armor of God, and the spiritual weapons he has provided can win this battle. Finally, we see in verse 13, we see a repeat of the exhortation to take up the full armor of God before it was put on. Again, this is take up the full armor of God. Paul is clear here that this is necessary so that we can resist, again, therefore take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. So again, speaking of standing firm, but the evil day is every day until Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. So that's now. And all you got to do is look at the world around us. We know this is the evil day. But again, we are called to put on everything, to take up the full armor of God so that we can resist in the evil day. Having done everything to stand firm, that we've com- and the having done everything, that we've completed everything and we're standing firm, we're holding the line. The indication again is not to fall back or surrender and to be obedient to all we are commanded and to hold our position no matter what. I would still pray for us that when glorification comes, we are found in our foxholes, holding the line, girded in the full armor of God, handling the spiritual weapons we are granted and having swaths of the enemy laid about us, having held our position regardless of the cost. I would pray that we, like Martin Luther, would be moved to say, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. Paul is clear here. The only way the above will happen is if we are strong in the Lord and if we put on the full armor of God. If you have not and are depending on yourself to fight this spiritual battle, I beg you to humble yourself and take Paul's guidance from today's verses. All right, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Close with the fifth day evening prayer. It's called protection. O Lord God, thou art our preserver, governor, savior, and coming judge. Quieten our souls to call upon thy name. Detach us from the influence of the flesh and the senses. Impress us with the power of faith. Promote in us spirituality of mind that will render our services acceptable to thee and delightful and profitable to ourselves. Bring us into that state which attracts thine eye, and prepare us to receive the proofs of thy love. Show us our danger that we may fly to thee for refuge. Make us sensible of our sin's disease, that we may value the good physician. Placard to us the cross, that it may slake the enmity of our hearts. Help us to be watchful over our ways, jealous over our tempers, diligent over our hearts. When we droop, revive us. When we loiter, quicken us. When we go astray, restore us. Possess us with more of that faith, which is the principle of all vital godliness. May we be rich in faith, be strong in faith, live by faith, walk by faith, experience the joy of faith, do the work of faith, hope through faith, perceiving nothing in ourselves, May we find in the Savior wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Amen. All right. Well, I hope you have a good rest of your evening and you have a good night's sleep. And God willing, I'll see you in the morning. God bless. 